We are continuing our study in uh, 1 Peter, so if you are interested want to make your way over there, you can turn to 1 Peter or scroll to 1 Peter, whatever it is that you do. You know, last, uh, last week when we were together, we had talked about verses uh, 10 through 12 of the first chapter of Peter, and there we looked at how Peter was explaining to the recipients of his letter that this whole thing about grace, this whole thing about salvation and the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus, was not something new. We tend at times to look at the New Testament. We start with the Christmas story and we say, well, Jesus was born in a manger and that's Christianity. But really, God had a plan, a sovereign plan, that began from the beginning, the very first pages of the Bible, it is, in fact, His story, the story of Jesus, the story of redemption, the story of grace. And uh, the Apostle Peter actually said last week, said that the prophets prophesied concerning the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it is these things that have been announced to you through the preached word of God. And so that was his final remarks was that it was these things that have been announced to you, these things, this coming Christ, this coming redeemer, this one who would rescue his people, who would in fact rescue all people who turn to God, those who repent, those who embrace the salvation, the grace that God offers. And so with that, in verses 10 through 12, he picks up then in what we refer to as verse 13, and he begins that verse with, therefore. He's saying, in light of all of these things that I have shared with you, in light of the fact that the prophets foretold, the prophets prophesied about this coming Messiah, this Christ, who would bring with him salvation and redemption and would set you free Therefore, he says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we see there are really two prerequisites. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So let's take a closer look at those. First, we have preparing your minds for action. Now, in other translations, particularly uh, some of the more academic translations uh, or the older, like the King James, New King James, it actually says this phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. I can kind of see why they changed it to preparing your minds for action. Although, if you go back and look at the literal, the original language, it really, that is really what it says, is gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that just paints all kinds of pictures there, but what he's uh, trying to say is this concept of girding. Now, that's just not a word that we really use that much, although I think we could probably draw some correlation anybody ever heard of a girdle 
I won't ask you if any have ever worn one, but if you've heard of one and you know what it is, the concept is that you put this girdle on, you strap it, you lace it up, and you pull it, and what does it do? It gathers everything that's contained in that girdle and kind of pulls it all together, right? So that's, the, that's really the concept here is to gird is to gather together. And so the concept here specifically in this context, and it's mentioned many times throughout the Bible, you'll see that word to gird or uh, is to gather up. And, and so in this context, it would be that uh, the men who you may recall wore these long robes, these long garments. And so for them to try to, to walk briskly or to run would be virtually impossible with this thing on. They would be tripping all over themselves and falling. And so when they needed to get into action, when they needed to actually like work or they needed to run, they would gather up the gown that they were wearing and oftentimes they would pull it up and they would tuck it in the belt that they were wearing so that their legs then were unencumbered and so that they could walk briskly or they could run, they could get around. And so what he's saying here is that you need to gird up your mind. You need to prepare your mind for action. It implies a state of readiness. That's really what he's trying to convey here. So don't get caught up in the, the girding your loins or the preparing for action. The whole point here is that he's saying that we need to be in a state of readiness. We need to be in a state ready for action. I see a, a very good parallel, a very good example of this in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, where God there is talking about the Passover. Now, you may recall the story of the uh, Israelites being in captivity in Egypt, and Moses had gone to the Pharaoh repeatedly. What were the famous words? Let my people go, right? Have you seen the movie? So he would go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, 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 no. So finally, God visits upon the Egyptians a final blow and that is to kill all of the firstborns of the Egyptians but so that the Israelites would not be affected by the specter of death he said that they were to to kill a Passover lamb and put the blood over the uh, doorway and that when the uh, angel of death came that it would pass over, right? I'm giving you the quick version here. <laughs> the angel of death would pass over, and so that's where the word Passover uh, came from, and obviously the Jews continue to celebrate that. But God explained uh, through Moses about this Passover and what was going to happen, and so he gave instructions, very explicit, very clear instructions about what the Israelites were to do so that this angel of death would pass over and so we pick up there in chapter 12 verse 11 where God has explained to Moses about what it is that they are to do as a part of this Passover it says in this manner you shall eat it right so they're eating their Passover meal <clears throat> in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now think of this image. So he's saying that when you eat this Passover lamb, in this Passover, 
you should sit there with your belt on, girded up, your sandals on your feet, and the staff in your hand, and you need to eat fast. Now, what would that suggest? Be ready. Something is about to happen, and you need to be ready. So you need to be girded up, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You need to be ready to go. Well, there's reason for that, and we're going to see kind of the rest of that story. We see in verses 29 through 32 of Exodus 12 there, after this, uh, the death of all of the firstborn in Egypt, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now note here verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, right, in the middle of the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Still in the middle of the night. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. So God's instruction to the Israelites was, you're going to have this Passover meal, but don't dawdle, don't waste time. Have your sandals on, your belt on, be girded up, have your staff, and be ready. Because what did God know? He knew that when all of these Egyptian children were dead, even the Pharaoh's son was dead, that the Pharaoh was going to say, get out of here. Get out of here. Be gone. And so he told the Israelites to be prepared. Be prepared. We see verse 33 of that same passage. It even says that the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. The next verse after that says that essentially what they were saying was, get out of here quick before we're all dead. And so there was a great sense of urgency. And so God wanted the people of Israel to be prepared to have a sense of readiness, prepare and be ready for action. The same concept is uh, conveyed through the Lord Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 35 through 36, he says to his disciples there, Stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Be ready. Be ready. Prepare your minds for action. As I read through this passage initially, it brought to my mind over the years I had coached my boys in uh, baseball, and one of the things that we learned early on was to be baseball ready. Anybody ever heard that term? Baseball ready. So whatever position that you're playing, you know, particularly when you're coaching little kids, what you get a lot of times is this. You know, or there, I even had some that would literally sit down out in the outfield and be digging in the grass. You know, their glove is laying over here on the ground somewhere, and they'd be out there digging in the grass. They were not baseball ready. Because when the ball came, guess what? They were not ready. And so 
think in terms of being baseball ready. And so what I would teach the kids is, you know, to kind of spread your legs apart, get your glove there on your hand and in front of you, and kind of squat down and be ready because if the ball goes that way, you can move to your right. And if the ball goes that way, you can move to your left. If it comes to you, you're ready to catch the ball. You're ready. You're ready, right? You're on the balls of your feet. You're moving, and you're ready, and you're ready, and you're baseball ready. And so that's what he's saying here is that we need to prepare our minds for action, that we don't need to be slothful and just kind of lounging around. It's a spiritual battle. And we need to realize the reality of this grace that He has extended to us. One of the great things about this passage is, is it is full of hope. Yes, there are things that we should do, and He gives us that instruction here. But ultimately, what He is saying is that we need to prepare our minds for action, that we need to be sober-minded, that we need to be concentrating, we need to be looking forward to that grace that is to be revealed to us. And so preparing your minds for action is the first thing, the first prerequisite for us in this passage. So then number two, he says, being sober-minded. Well, this term sober-minded literally means free from intoxicating influences. You know, we tend to think of being sober is kind of the antithesis, the opposite of being intoxicated. And we might think of that in terms of alcohol or something um but it could be something more than that certainly could be that but certainly could be more than that more broadly being sober-minded means that we do not allow ourselves to be captivated by any type of influence that would lead us away from sound judgment even things influences of the world you see this book the bible should be our guide it should be our standard. It should be our compass. It should be where we go to for truth and where we go to for answers. And we should not allow ourselves to be intoxicated by the influences of the world that tell us anything that is contrary to this word. But it's easy to do. Satan designed it that way. He wants to dangle things that are bright and shiny in front of us to lure us away from the truth of God's Word. And so we almost have to always constantly battle with that to, to look at that and say no. You may remember Jesus when He went out into the wilderness and Satan came to Him and He tempted Him over and over. He kept tempting Him with things about the world. And Jesus kept using what? He used the Word of God to defend Himself against that temptation and so it should be for us that we need to be sober minded we need to focus our attention on God's word and not be influenced by the things of the world it's often just the opposite of sober mindedness that we see in this world is that uh, revelational to you um, you just watch the news a little bit and you'll realize that uh, much of the world these days living according to the world, is not a state of sober-mindedness. We see silliness, irresponsible choices, foolish experimentation with harmful substances, crude joking. All these things are direct opposition 
to the command to be sober-minded. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lists some behaviors that conflict with this sober-minded living. Now, let me just say, this is not an exhaustive list, but it certainly illustrates the point. We are speaking of the opposite of being sober-minded. So sometimes it helps us to look at the opposite of something to understand what we're talking about. So we're talking here about the opposite of sober-mindedness. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because there are, they, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. These things take up time, waste energy. They are not a part of living a sober-minded life. Now, lest you think that it's not that big a deal, that often seems to be the case in our world. Nothing is taken very seriously. And so, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters, it's just no big deal, right? You can read God's Word, but you don't necessarily have to do it. You can go to church, you can listen to messages, but it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to change. It doesn't mean that you've got to do anything to conform to the Word of God. It really is not that big a deal, or so the world would tell us. But again, coming back to the truth of God's Word, where we really need to find our answers, God is very serious about this. In fact, that list of things I just read to you comes out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But then, later in that same chapter, verses 5 through 7, immediately following that list of things, it says this, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, you may not take it seriously, but apparently God takes it seriously. He says, do not do these things. Do not be partners with those who do. But lest you have this idea that I'm talking about living some sort of puritanic, a stoic life, <laughs> being sober-minded does not mean that you've got to be a, a sourpuss. It doesn't mean that you've got to live some sort of joyless existence. In fact, quite the contrary. Sober-minded Christians are to be continually filled with the joy wrought by the Holy Spirit. We are to live a life of joyfulness. You know, people should look at us, should look into our lives, should see us in the way we carry ourselves, the way we act in public. People should see a sense of joy about us. Do they see that in you? Well, I'll be honest and transparent with you. I'll tell you, sometimes they don't see that in me. And, and that, that burdens me because I realize that sometimes. You know, I look at myself in the mirror and I think, 
you're not really making a very good uh, example here for the joy of Christ. And I would dare say we probably all fall victim to that sometimes. We just get beaten down, we get beat up, and it's the reason we must go back to God's Word. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So we are to be sober-minded, not a sourpuss, but filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But one of the first things that we can do is to eliminate those ill influences in our life, those influences of the world that would seek to draw us away from the truth of God's Word, to draw us away from what is truly important, to not be deceived by what the world says is important, but to look into God's Word to see what is important, that which is most important, that which is real and eternal. You may recall the story of Jesus when he took his disciples up on the mountain. He said, I'm going to go over here and pray. And he says, I want you to pray with me. You stay here and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray. They fell asleep. You read that story and I say, good grief. What's your problem? Jesus asked you to pray with him and you couldn't stay awake? Man. And then I hear this voice that says something like, that's you. That's you. And then I feel convicted because I realize the truth of that was that Jesus has called me to be ready to prepare my mind for action, to be sober-minded. Jesus said to those disciples when he came back and found them sleeping, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You see, because that's the risk for all of us, is that when we are not baseball-ready, or if you will, we're not spiritually ready. Then when those fiery darts of temptation fly our way, we're not very agile. We're not very able to miss them, to get away from them. You know, when I think about being trained, being ready, I think about a cousin that I have that went into the military, went into the Marines. And one time, shortly after he'd gotten out of the Marines, we had gone hunting, he and I and several other guys, and we were sitting around a campfire. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon when guys are out uh, hunting like that for at least one person to have some sort of sidearm on, you know, because there could be something really dangerous like a rabbit or something come up into the, the camp. you got to be ready. And, uh, but it could be something. It could be a snake, you know. Any kind of snake is dangerous, all right, because if I saw one, I'd have a heart attack and die. So that makes it lethal. But uh, so we're sitting there around the campfire, and you know how campfires are. There's a certain glow about it, and then there's a point at which there's just darkness beyond that, and you can't see beyond that. Well, we're all sitting around in our chairs relaxing and talking, and we heard something that was the snap, crack, of like a branch breaking or something, like someone maybe had stepped on this branch and had broken it. Well, by the time I acknowledged that, by the time that noise made its way into my brain, 
And my brain kind of calculated it, said, hmm, that sounded like a branch breaking. My cousin had gotten up out of his chair, had pulled out his sidearm, and had racked a bullet into the chamber and was looking around out there in the dark. I'm still sitting there with my hot dog. And he's up, like, looking around, dude. You know why? He was ready. He was prepared. He was prepared. He had the loins of his mind girded. He was prepared, ready for action. So Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. That's essentially what he was telling them. You need to be ready. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be real. You need to be honest with yourself. Because God has done so much for us. We see that in the passages leading up to today's message that God sent His Son. The prophets spoke of this coming one, this Redeemer. And now that He has come and He has given us this grace, this mercy that has been announced to you through the preaching of God's Word, well then now you need to be action ready and you need to be sober minded. Next, in our text here, he says, set your hope fully on the grace. So he says, having prepared your mind for action and being sober-minded, then having done those things, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope set your hope, set your faith, this faith, this hope, is so well illustrated in Hebrews. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, sometimes we use the word hope like, well, I hope that's going to happen. But there's doubt mingled in that, isn't it? There's doubt mingled in that because we're saying, I hope that is going to happen. But then the word hope is used differently in the Bible many times. It's speaking of a hope that is an assurance. It is a guaranteed thing, something you can bank on. It is the hope. The, the looking forward to, the anticipation of, the excitement of something that will come about. Something that will happen. It is a hope that we can cling to, a hope that we can hang on to, a hope that is not just a, a maybe, but a hope that is a guarantee. It's the assurance. It's the conviction of things not seen. That same passage, that same verse in Hebrews, in the NIV translation says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. What we do not see. That there is a truth, there is a reality, that is every bit as real and in many ways more so than what we see around us. But we put our hope, we put our trust 
far too often in the things that we see, in the things of this world, and we lose perspective, we lose sight of the fact that there is another dimension, there is another realm, there is this spiritual realm that is every bit as real and more so than what we see here today. And so he tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is this grace that will be fulfilled in us at the coming of Jesus. We don't see it right now. We have grace in our life. We, if, if you're a believer, you have experienced the grace of God, but you will not fully experience that grace of God until Jesus returns in His glory. So He calls us to set our hope fully on that grace. Those are the words of encouragement today that, you know, as we live in this life, as we live in this world, we're called to be in the world but not of the world. We should not allow the world to cause us to become intoxicated with those things of the world. We should focus, we should set our minds, our hope on the grace that is to come. We should set our hope on our eternal home, on heaven. And so we look around and granted we look and we don't see that. We don't see the total fulfillment of that grace, but God's word promises it. We look around and we don't see this wonderful place called heaven. We don't see it, but God's word promises it. And so we should live in a manner that suggests that that is so real, that it is just as real as the platform I'm standing on, just as real as the car I'll get in today to drive home, just as real as the home that's sitting out in Paulding County where I will be going. I know it's there even though I don't see it right now. I know it's there. And so we should live our lives, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I know it's hard, this almost seems academic to talk about this, that how could it really be that real? How can it be that real to us? Well, there's a wonderful example, I think, of this concept found in 2 Kings chapter 6. There, there is the story of Elisha. Now, you may recall, Elisha led the Israelites. He had uh, inherited that role of leadership from the prophet Elijah. And so the king of Syria was trying to destroy the Israelites. He was trying to kill the king of Israel. But somehow every time that he would plan this battle to take out the Israelites, to take out this king of Israel, they always seemed to be a step ahead. They always seemed to know what his plan was, and so he got uh, upset about this, and in the story, he goes to the leaders in his uh, army, and he says, who is it that keeps telling the Israelites our plans? They clearly know, they're always one step ahead. Who among you is going and telling them what's going on? You know, we've got a mole here somewhere, and they said, no, it's not us. It's not us. It's the prophet Elisha. It's almost as if he can hear what you're saying in your bedroom. And then he's going and telling the king of Israel your plans. Well, as you might imagine, 
this upset the king of Syria. And so we pick up there and he says, Go and see where he is. Go and see where this Elisha is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. That's not Alabama, by the way. But uh, verse 14, he says, So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. They're going after one man. One man. So he's serious. He's going to take Elisha out. Going after this one man. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the whole city. They're going to make sure he doesn't get away. There's no hope. A great army, horses, chariots surrounding the city. There is no hope. Well, Elisha's servant gets up that morning. You may recall it says he sent them by night. And so the servant of Elisha gets up. He kind of stretches. He goes over there and he kind of peeks out the window. There's an army, a whole army of horses and warriors and chariots surrounding the city. You know what he thinks? There's no hope. There's no hope. But let's look at the rest of the story here. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And he said, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? I don't blame him. I think I would have been the same way. I would have just walked out and said, I surrender. But Elisha had a different perspective. Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid. Really? Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now this servant's looking around and he's saying, you know what? This is a one-room house. I see you, and there's me, nobody else, just us. But I look outside, and I see a whole army surrounding the whole city. And Elijah says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, you know this servant got to be scratching his head and he's thinking this dude has finally gone over the edge he's totally lost it he's talking about all of those who are with us there's nobody here but me and him then the story goes on it says then elisha prayed and said oh lord please open his eyes that he may see So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, his servant, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? So maybe this servant was looking out there, and before his eyes was opened, he probably thought, I hope we can get out of this mess. I hope I can live to see another day. But that hope was mingled with doubt, I'm sure. But once he saw 
this angelic army, God's army of horses and flaming chariots, his hope changed. It was no longer a hope that we might get out of this. He now had a hope that like, we're getting out of this because he saw that army. And so it is when Peter speaks here that we should set our hope on the glory that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a hope like I I hope it's going to happen. It's a hope like that servant had when he looked out and he saw that angelic army and he knew he had hope. He had something to hang on to because he knew that that army would defeat the other army. And so they did. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more to come. There's more for us than what is going on in this world. There's more for us than this life. We need to prepare our minds for action. We need to be sober-minded. We need to set our hope on the grace that is to be fulfilled at the coming of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory that we are to know, the grace that is to be fulfilled is yet to come. Philippians 1.6 reminds us of this as he The Apostle Paul there says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the encouragement, the assurance that we have that God is not finished with us yet, that the grace that he began in us is yet to be fully fulfilled. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, the Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So as we look back at our passage today, Having unfolded some of these concepts, I hope that you look at this verse with fresh eyes. See the truth of God's Word here. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that is my prayer for you, for all of us, that we will set aside and defend ourselves against the temptations of this world, that we would not be intoxicated by this world, but that we would be sober-minded, that we would set our minds to action, that we would be prepared 
and that we would look anxiously with anticipation to the glory and the grace that is to be ours at the coming of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us, for providing for us through your word as you instruct us, as you encourage us, as you convict us through your word. I ask that we would embrace that today. That none of us would hear your word this morning and then walk out and just forget all that you have said. Father, you have a message for each of us. I pray that we would be willing to receive it, we would hear it, we would apply it to our lives, and that we would be different for having been here today. Father, your word ministers to us as nothing else can. It reaches down into the very depths of our being. Father, your word reveals things about us that we don't want to admit to ourselves, that we would certainly not admit to others. But your word convicts us. And Father, your word sees into our being, it sees our fears. And it brings comfort and encouragement in areas that we would not even want to confess. But you bring healing. You bring encouragement. So, Father, may we embrace your message today. And as we sing now, I pray that we would sing with that sense of joy of salvation. That sense of anticipation of looking forward to a day when we will know the full measure of your grace. That we will see you as you are. And that we will be transformed from glory to glory. That we will be all that you have anticipated for us and all that we can anticipate and more. May we sing with that joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.